Hello and welcome to this reading of Rosemary Sutcliffe's essay, History as People. The essay was originally distributed at a conference for the Children's Literature and Education Journal, which took place in Exeter in 1971 and was later reprinted in the 1973 anthology Children and Literature, Views and Reviews, edited by Virginia Haviland, which is where this reading is taken from. It's an interesting essay as it provides not only an insight into how Sutcliffe viewed her responsibilities as a children's author, but it also sees her discuss her belief that human nature remains essentially consistent and relatable throughout history, and to illustrate this, she draws on a range of texts ranging in date from the Homeric Age to the English Civil War. Now it seemed to me a bit of a waste that this essay was tucked away in an edited volume, with many of those who have read and been inspired by Sutcliffe's works probably unaware of its existence. Many of you listening have probably heard the audio documentary that I put together about Sutcliffe's Roman Britain stories, and it was particularly frustrating for me to discover this essay just shortly after I published the documentary. And in some respects, this recording is me making up for missing out on what I think is an important, if perhaps not well-known, publication that raises not only interesting questions about how one approaches historical fiction, but also a glimpse into the mind of Sutcliffe and how she conceptualised certain aspects of history. Of course, it's important to remember that this essay is a product of its time. There are some words which, although not intended to be offensive, will probably raise eyebrows amongst readers and listeners today. For example, retarded is a word that we now avoid, and, regardless of whatever your reasons for doing so, giving someone the nickname monkey is no longer acceptable. As a quick aside to that, actually, from what I can work out, the family that Sutcliffe is referring to in both these instances when she uses the term retarded and the term monkey, is that of the Admiral Compton Donville, although I can't find anything to indicate the, and I quote, reasons that were painfully obvious for his nickname monkey. Anyway, it's worth noting that these are instances of Sutcliffe describing the views of others, and in any case, I think it's better to not edit out such parts and just present the text as it is. Likewise, Sutcliffe's positive description of Thomas Seymour might take some by surprise, given that he seems to have been a thoroughly unpleasant man. In fact, Sutcliffe's suggestion that Seymour was a man capable of loving two women at the same time has shades of the autobiographical about it, for, as she recounted in her memoirs, she had herself fallen in love with a polygamist when she was younger. But, some awkward moments aside, what shines through in this essay is how Sutcliffe had a capacity for understanding human nature, which then manifested itself in her stories, and which in turn provides one of the reasons as to why these stories became, and continue to be, so popular not only amongst children, but adults as well. So once again, thanks for tuning in, and this is Rosemary Sutcliffe's History is People. writers with an interest in the work that goes beyond the bread and butter level are aware of some kind of aim, something that they feel they are doing or trying to do. And this I think is, or at any rate should be, especially true of writers for the young. You, reading this, have formed your reading tastes, or had them formed for you. You have also done your growing up, well, most of it. I suppose one never quite finishes until the day one dies and have become the sort of people, more or less, that you are going to be for the rest of your lives, allowing for the natural differences between, say, 18 and 80. At any rate, in writing for you, nobody has to feel responsibility for helping to form you or your tastes. 
but the reading child is liable to absorb ideas from books which may remain with him for the rest of his life and even play some part in determining the kind of person that he is going to become. Along with most of my fellow writers, I am aware of the responsibilities of my job and I do try to put over to the child reading any book of mine some kind of ethic, a set of values beyond the colour television, two cars in the garage variety. I keep well clear of the treasure hunt theme with its undertones of something for nothing, which in one form or another does seem to rather dog children's literature. I try to show the reader that doing the right, kind, brave, honest thing doesn't have to result in any concrete reward, and that this doesn't matter. The reward lies in having done the right, kind, brave, honest thing, in having kept faith with one's own integrity, and probably in being given a more difficult thing to do next time. Another responsibility of the writer for children which I try my best to fulfil is simply to supply them with words. This may sound trivial and obvious, but the words are man's means, not only of communicating, but of giving shape and manageability to his own thoughts and ideas. I have heard really tragic stories of children and young people failing in all important exams or in interviews for jobs, Not for any lack of intelligence, knowing perfectly well the answers to questions put to them, knowing what they wanted to say, but simply lacking the vocabulary with which to communicate in plain English. Since children learn their English from storybooks for pleasure as well as from lesson books in school, this is an appalling indictment of their reading matter, and one which we who write books for them must do something about. America has of late years begun the scientific production of books with graded vocabularies, 200 words, 400 words and so on. You match the size of the vocabulary to the age of the child and it all sounds perfectly splendid. But this is to rob children of the beckoning splendour of words they do not yet understand. It matters remarkably little to a child that he does not understand a particular word. It's the flavour that counts. And possibly of all curiosity as to words later. This is the eighth deadly sin, and I don't care how scientific it is. My kind of book, the historical novel, is sometimes looked on as being an easy retreat from the complications and restrictions inherent in writing a modern story for the young. This is unfair. It is true that one has greater freedom in some ways. In Roman Britain or Norman England, a boy at 14 or 15 can play a man's part, which is unlikely in the modern world and the writer can make use of situations which would be far-fetched or even impossible in the present day. There's a kind of safety barrier which makes it possible to deal with harsher realities than most children can take in their stride, if one were writing of people and events in their own world as they know it. The safety barrier is, I think, becoming less important, both to children themselves and to parents, teachers and librarians, but I don't believe that I could make my hero kill himself, as I did in The Mark of the Horse Lord, in a modern story set in everyday England. One might get away with it in a story set in a far-off and very different place, say, New Guinea, but this would merely be to substitute distance of place and culture for distance of time as a safety barrier. This is all true, but greater freedom is not in itself a bad thing, and there are plenty of extra problems to set against it, beside the obvious ones of research and historical accuracy. There is the ever-present danger of spilling over into cloak and dagger. There is the necessity to keep the people from being engulfed in the trimmings. 
This can happen very easily, especially if the garnered results of a writer's research have not been properly digested before being used. Nothing is worse for a historical story than undigested fragments of historical background. There is the problem of making the people as real and individual as their modern counterparts, while at the same time not turning them into modern men and women in fancy dress. There is the problem, too, of the spoken word. Victorian writers, and even those of a somewhat later date, had no difficulty. They saw nothing ludicrous in, Alas, fair youth, it grieves me to see thee in this plight. Would that I had the power to strike these fetters from thy tender limbs. Josephine Tay, whose death I shall never cease to lament, called this writing forsoothly. A slightly different variant is known in the trade as gadzookery. Nowadays this is out of fashion, and some writers go to the other extreme and make the people of classical Greece or medieval England speak modern colloquial English. This is perhaps nearer to the truth of the spirit, since the people in question would have spoken the modern colloquial tongue of their time and place. But personally I find it destroys the atmosphere when a young Norman knight says to his squire, Shut up, Dickie, you're getting too big for your boots. Myself, I try for a middle course, avoiding both gadzookery and modern colloquialism, a frankly made-up form that has the right sound to it, as Kipling did also. I try to catch the rhythm of a tongue, the tune that it plays on the ear, Welsh or Gaelic as opposed to Anglo-Saxon, the sensible workmanlike language which one feels the Latin of the ordinary Roman citizen would have translated into. It is extraordinary what can be done by the changing or transposing of a single word, or using a perfectly usual one in a slightly unusual way. I beg your pardon, changed into, I ask your pardon. But I would emphasise that this is not done by any set rule of thumb, I simply play it by ear as I go along. I seem to have written the word people a great many times. And this, I think, must be because I feel so strongly that history is people, and people not so very unlike ourselves. This is a favourite thumping tub of mine, and I now propose to thump it for a while. The way people act is conditioned by the social custom of their day and age. Even the way they think and feel with what one might call their outer layers. To take a very simple and obvious example... The men of the first Elizabethan age, and heaven knows they were a tough enough lot, cried easily and without shame in public. The rising generation of this second Elizabethan age are returning to much the same feeling, that one's emotions are not for hiding. But the men of my generation, my father's and my grandfather's, were so conditioned in their extreme youth to the idea that men simply didn't, that by the time they were 15 or 16 they couldn't, even in private except for such things as the death of a wife or child. But that's not to say that they feel or felt any less about things they would have cried about 400 years ago. I know there are two schools of thought about whether or not human nature actually changes, some maintaining that it does, some, me amongst them, that it doesn't. I believe most strongly that people don't change, that under the changing surface patterns of behaviour, the fundamental qualities and emotions and relationships remain the same. Very much the qualities and emotions and relationships, incidentally, that one finds in Westerns. Which is one reason why I like Westerns, and why most of the people in my own books would be perfectly at home in Laramie, while I would have no hesitation in sending the Virginian north of Hadrian's Wall 
to recover the eagle of a lost legion. But even the surface patterns don't alter perhaps so much as one tends to think, and it is possible sometimes through a letter or a line of ancient poetry or some small object held in the hand to catch glimpses of people separated from us by 200 or 2,000 years, so like ourselves that for the moment it is almost frightening because for that moment it makes nonsense of time. About ten years ago, on a Hellenic cruise, I visited the museum at Heraklion and spent a happy afternoon among the treasures excavated from the Palace of Knossos. Octopus and dolphin jars, inlaid weapons, jewellery of intensely yellow gold, ivory bull dancers in mid-leap. In the corner of one room was a case of little ornaments and children's toys, Amongst them a tiny pottery tree with five or six branches, each ending in a fat little bird. It was painted in stripes, pale and pretty as an old-fashioned peppermint stick, the most completely charming thing. My first feeling on seeing it was a small, sharp shock of delight, and my first thought, how I should have loved to have had that when I was a little girl. It wasn't until the moment after that I remembered that the little girl who must have loved it and felt that same shock of delight on first seeing it, had been dead for 3,000 years or so. Then Homer has that lovely bit in the Iliad, just before Hector goes out from beleaguered Troy on the final sally that ends in his death. He is saying goodbye to his wife and baby son, and... As he spoke, Hector held out his arms for his boy, but the boy shrunk back into the nurse's bosom, crying and scared at the sight of his father, for he was afraid of the gleaming metal and the horsehair crest when he saw that dreadful thing nodding from the top of the helmet. Father and mother laughed aloud, and Hector took off the helmet and set it down on the ground, shining and flashing. Then he kissed his son and dandled him in his hands and prayed aloud to heaven. How many infants since Homer's day must have been terrified by the sight of father in an over-splendid hat? I know one myself, when we were both about five. He was supposed, though he turned brilliant later, to be slightly retarded, and for this his nanny held his parents to be entirely responsible. They'd taken him to see his grandfather, known throughout the Navy as Monkey Donville, for reasons which were painfully obvious, in full dress for some court function. And the poor child, who was quite used to his grandfather in the usual way, had taken one look at him under a gold-laced cocked hat, screamed wildly, and, according to Nanny, fallen in a fit and never been the same child since. There's another tiny story about Hector and his son which I like, that the boy's real name was Astyanax, but Hector called him Scamander after the river which ran through the plain of Troy. No reason is given for the father's choice of name, one can only assume that Astyanax was a wet baby. The small family joke may be Homer's rather than Hector's, but it is still of respectable antiquity, and it's a joke that might quite easily have been made this morning. In Britain, very early letters, etc., have little chance to survive the climate and conditions, but everyone knows how long papyrus holds together in the dry air of Egypt and there is in existence a delightful letter dating from Roman times from a young officer of the legion stationed at Alexandria to his mother. To this day, it is generally to the mother rather than the father that a boy turns when he wants a bit extra. I hope that you are well as I am. 
Please send me two hundred drachma. Have bought a mule cart, and that has taken all my money. So, dear mother, do please send me my month allowance. Valeri's mother sent him plenty of olive oil and a parcel of meat and two hundred drachma. Please send me some money and don't leave me like this. My brother wrote to me, but he only sent me a pair of drawers. Please answer this letter quickly. Give my greeting to all at home. Your loving son. From medieval times onwards, of course, many English letters have survived. I cherish extracts from three in particular: one medieval, one dating from Tudor times, and one from the Civil War. The first is a lovely piece of husband coaxing written in 1443 when scarlet gowns were the height of fashion. On September 28th of that year, Margaret Paston, wife of a country knight, wrote to her husband, who was in London suffering from a bad leg of some kind. I would you were at home, if it were for your ease, and your sore might be as well looked to here as it is where ye be now, liefer than a gown, though it were of scarlet. History doesn't record whether the good knight took the hint, but I hope so much that he did. The Tudor one is from Catherine Parr to Tom Seymour, Lord High Admiral of England. One tends to think of her as dull and middle-aged. In fact, she was a woman of great charm and intelligence. She was only thirty-six when she died. She was married off to old men and widowed twice, and was already engaged for the first time by her own choice to Tom Seymour when Henry VIII cast his eye on her. And after his death, she went to her own house in Chelsea, and Tom came courting her again. They were married, and when their child was born, she died. The recent TV serial *The Six Wives of Henry VIII* did less justice to her relationship with Seymour. Suggesting that after the king's death she had no longer any wish to marry him, and was forced into it for reasons of state. Reasons of state there were for the marriage and entanglements with Princess Elizabeth too, but whatever the Lord Admiral's feelings for the ex-queen, my own guess is that he was one of those men capable of being genuinely in love with two different women at the same time. Her letters to him, written from Chelsea in the months before their wedding. Are the letters of a woman serenely and very happily in love? I would not have you think that this, mine honest goodwill towards you, proceeds from any sudden passion. For as truly as God is God, my mind was fully bent the other time I was free to marry you before any man I know. However, God withstood my will therein most vehemently for a time, and through His grace and goodness made it possible for me to do what I did not think possible. To utterly renounce mine own will and follow His willingly. It would take too long to write all the story of this matter. If I live, I shall tell it to you myself. I can say nothing, but as my Lady of Suffolk saith, God is a marvellous man. And again, she writes a note to Tom, who was in the habit of walking across from Westminster through the fields in the early summer mornings. I pray you, let me have knowledge overnight. At hour you will come. That your portress may wait at the gate to the fields for you. Last of all, the Civil War letter. Edward Spencer, Earl of Sunderland, declared for the king, and five letters which he wrote home from the Royalist army to his young wife are still in existence. The last written just four days before the Second Battle of Newbury. 
His adored little three-year-old daughter must have sent him a scribble letter of the kind so often enclosed with a mother's letter to her husband away from home. To heaven knows how many servicemen in heaven knows how many wars since then. For he sends her this message. Pray bless Poppet for me and tell her that I would have written to her but that, upon careful consideration, I find it to be uncivil to return an answer to a lady in other characters than her own which I am not yet learned enough to do. Four days later, he was killed in action. Forgive me if I have meandered too long among my favourite bits and pieces, thumping my favourite tub. It is important to me all this, because history is people, and I try to teach history. The man's eye view of history, not the God's eye view. It is because history books must of necessity take the God's eye view that they can so often and so easily become dull. That, and because they so often break it up into set static pictures, each, as it were, separately framed, often by the reigns of succeeding monarchs, instead of treating it as a living and continuous process of which we are a part and of which our descendants, supposing that we haven't blown the planet up, will be a part also. I feel it to be enormously important that the young should be given this sense of continuity, that they should be given the feeling of their roots behind them. To know and really understand something of where one came from helps one to understand and cope better with where one is now and where one is going to. And as we today are standing too near our own particular stretch of history to be able to make out the pattern and see how the story ends, So I feel that history can best be brought to life for children through people in the like situation with regards to their own stretch of history. People standing too close to see the pattern and who, like us, don't know how the story ends. That's my justification for being a historical novelist and not a historian. But they must be people with whom the children can identify through the fundamental sameness, like calling to like under the changing surfaces. Some years ago, I was struck by a Sunday Times article putting forward the theory that the ability to write for children is the result of an unlived pocket of childhood left over in the writer. I think this is very probably true. It was certainly true of Rudyard Kipling and Beatrix Potter, and it is certainly true of me. But I think also that it draws heavily on a feeling for the primitive and fundamental things of life. The young have this feeling very strongly. It is why myths and legends, certainly not meant for children, have been taken over by them. It is one of the reasons why children like westerns, and why, as I said before, I like them too. Legends and westerns and my sort of historical novel are all alike in dealing in the big basic themes. Comradeship between men, loyalty and treachery and divided loyalty, love and hate, the sense of property, revenge for slain kinfolk. And of course, the age-old struggle between good and evil. As I say, the instinct for this is strong in children. In most adults, it has been pushed down, sometimes only a little way, sometimes almost entirely into the subconscious. But it is always there, forming a common ground on which children's books can appeal to adult readers. Which is why it is not only unnecessary, but wrong, to write down for children Instead, the child should be drawn out and up. This is why books can play such a great part in a child's development, 
enlarging him and giving him a broader and deeper awareness and why we who write for children carry such terrible responsibility on our shoulders. So, I've said what I wanted to say. I hope it makes sense to you. It is all true, but in case you think it all sounds too earnest and didactic, I will add one thing more. That basically, fundamentally, and at the beginning of all things, I merely find or am found by a story which I want to tell, which seems to me worth telling, and above all, which I want to hear and tell it to the best of my ability. All the rest if I'm lucky, is added unto me in the course of the telling. Thanks for listening to this reading of Rosemary Sutcliffe's essay, History is People. The voice cast included Alex Davis as Rosemary Sutcliffe, Nikos Karidis as Homer, Flavio Bacci as the Roman soldier, Sarah Bremner as Margaret Paston, Vicky Sayward-Reed as Catherine Parr, and Jay Ingate as Edward Spencer. The background music consists of the tracks Meditation Impromptu 1-3, Touching Memories, Relaxing Piano Music, and Crossing the Divide, all by Kevin MacLeod, and available from Incompetech.com. If you'd like to find out more about Rosemary Sutcliffe, you can visit her official website at rosemarysutcliffe.net. You can also read my analyses of various Sutcliffe novels and short stories on the website for the Our Mythical Childhood Survey, an international project which looks at the influence of classical culture on modern children's media.